Welcome back to another episode of Carla Reads the Classics. If you'd like to leave me a voicemail, please do so following the link at about this episode, or you can write to me at carlareadstheclassics at gmail.com. And now for J.D. Salinger's The Catcher in the Rye, Chapter 18. When I left the skating rink, I felt sort of hungry, so I went in this drugstore and had a Swiss cheese sandwich and a malted, and then I went in a phone booth. I thought maybe I might give old Jane another buzz and see if she was home yet. I mean, I have the whole evening free, and I thought I'd give her a buzz, and if she was home yet, take her dancing or something somewhere. I never danced with her or anything the whole time I knew her. I saw her dancing once, though. She looked like a very good dancer. It was at this Fourth of July dance at the club. I didn't know her too well then, and I didn't think I ought to cut in on her date. She was dating this terrible guy, Al Pike, that went to Coet. I didn't know him too well, but he was always hanging around the swimming pool. He wore those white lastex kind of swimming trunks, and he was always going off the high dive. He did the same lousy old half-gainer all day long. It was the only dive he could do, but he thought he was very hot stuff. All muscles and no brains. Anyway, that's who Jane dated that night. I couldn't understand it. I swear I couldn't. After we started going around together, I asked her how come she could date a show-off bastard like Al Pike. Jane said he wasn't a show-off. She said he had an inferiority complex. She acted like she felt sorry for him or something. And she wasn't just putting it on. She meant it. It's a funny thing about girls. Every time you mention some guy that's strictly a bastard, very mean or very conceited and all, and when you mention it to the girl, she'll tell you he has an inferiority complex. Maybe he has, but that still doesn't keep him from being a bastard, in my opinion. Girls, you never know what they're going to think. I once got this girl, Roberta Walsh's roommate, a date with a friend of mine. His name was Bob Robinson, and he really had an inferiority complex. You could tell he was very ashamed of his parents and all, because they said he don't and she don't and stuff like that, and they weren't very wealthy. But he wasn't a bastard or anything. He was a very nice guy. But this Roberta Walsh's roommate didn't like him at all. She told Roberta he was too conceited, and the reason she thought he was conceited was because he happened to mention to her that he was the captain of the debating team. A little thing like that, and she thought he was conceited. The trouble with girls is, if they like a boy, no matter how big a bastard he is, they'll say he has an inferiority complex. And if they don't like him, no matter how nice a guy he is, or how big an inferiority complex he has, they'll say he's conceited. Even smart girls do it. Anyway, I gave old Jane a buzz again, but her phone didn't answer, so I had to hang up. Then I had to look through my address book to see who the hell might be available for the evening. The trouble was, though, my address book has only about three people in it. Jane, and this man, Mr. Antolini, that was my teacher at Elkton Hills, and my father's office number. I keep forgetting to put people's name in it. So what I did finally, I gave old Carl Lucci a buzz. He graduated from the Wooten School after I left. He was about three years older than I was, and I didn't like him too much, but he was one of those very intellectual guys. He had the highest IQ of any boy at Wooten, and I thought he might want to have dinner with me somewhere and have a slightly intellectual conversation. He was very enlightening sometimes, so I gave him a buzz. He went to Columbia now, but he lived on 65th Street and all, and I knew he'd be home. 
When I got him on the phone, he said he couldn't make it for dinner, but that he'd meet me for a drink at ten o'clock at the Wicker Bar on 54th. I think he was pretty surprised to hear from me. I once called him a fat-assed phony. I had quite a bit of time to kill till ten o'clock, so what I did, I went to the movies at Radio City. It was probably the worst thing I could have done, but it was near, and I couldn't think of anything else. I came in when the goddamn stage show was on. The Rockettes were kicking their heads off, the way they do when they're all in line with their arms around each other's waist. The audience applauded like mad, and some guy behind me kept saying to his wife, "'You know what that is? That's precision.' He killed me. Then after the Rockettes, a guy came out in a tuxedo and roller skates and started skating under a bunch of little tables and telling jokes while he did it. He was a very good skater and all, but I couldn't enjoy it much because I kept picturing him practicing to be a guy that roller skates on the stage. It seemed so stupid. I guess I just wasn't in the right mood. Then after him, they had this Christmas thing that they have at Radio City every year— all these angels start coming out of the boxes and everywhere, guys carrying crucifixes and stuff all over the place, and the whole bunch of them, thousands of them, singing, Come all ye faithful, like mad. Big deal. It's supposed to be religious as hell, I know, and very pretty and all, but I can't see anything religious or pretty, for God's sake, about a bunch of actors carrying crucifixes all over the stage. When they were all finished and started going out of the boxes again, you could tell they could hardly wait to get a cigarette or something. I saw it with old Sally Hayes the year before, and she kept saying how beautiful it was, the costumes and all. I said old Jesus probably would have puked if he could see it, all those fancy costumes and all. Sally said I was a sacrilegious atheist. I probably am. The thing Jesus really would have liked would be the guy that plays the kettle drums in the orchestra. I've watched that guy since I was about eight years old. My brother Allie and I, if we were with our parents and all, we used to move our seats and go way down so we could watch him. He's the best drummer I ever saw. He only gets a chance to bang them a couple of times during the whole piece, but he never looks bored when he isn't doing it. Then when he does bang them, he does it so nice and sweet with this nervous expression on his face. One time when we went to Washington with my father, Allie sent him a postcard, but I'll bet he never got it. We weren't too sure how to address it. After the Christmas thing was over, the goddamn picture started. It was so putrid I couldn't take my eyes off it. It was about this English guy, Alex something, that was in the war and loses his memory in the hospital and all. He comes out of the hospital carrying a cane and limping all over the place, all over London, not knowing who the hell he is. He's really a duke, but he doesn't know it. Then he meets this nice, homey, sincere girl getting on a bus. Her goddamn hat blows off and he catches it, and then they go upstairs and sit down and start talking about Charles Dickens. He's both their favorite author and all. He's carrying this copy of Oliver Twist in his pocket. And so is she. I could have puked. Anyway, they fall in love right away on account of they're both so nuts about Charles Dickens and all, and he helps her run her publishing business. She's a publisher, the girl. Only she's not doing so hot, because her brother's a drunkard and he spends all their dough. He's a very bitter guy, the brother, because he was a doctor in the war, and now he can't operate any more because his nerves are shot, so he boozes all the time. But he's pretty witty and all. Anyway, 
Old Alec writes a book, and this girl publishes it, and they both make a hatful of dough on it. They're all set to get married when this other girl, old Marcia, shows up. Marcia was Alec's fiancée before he lost his memory, and she recognizes him when he's in the store autographing books. She tells old Alec he's really a duke and all, but he doesn't believe her and doesn't want to go with her to visit his mother and all. His mother's blind as a bat, but the other girl, the homey one, makes him go. She's very noble and all, so he goes, but he still doesn't get his memory back, even when his great dame jumps all over him, and his mother sticks her fingers all over his face, and brings him this teddy bear he used to slobber around with when he was a kid. But then one day, some kids are playing cricket on the lawn, and he gets smacked in the head with a cricket ball. Then right away he gets his goddamn memory back, and he goes in and kisses his mother on the forehead and all. Then he starts being a regular duke again, and he forgets all about the homie babe that has the publishing business. I'd tell you the rest of the story, but I might puke if I did. It isn't that I'd spoil it for you or anything. There isn't anything to spoil, for Christ's sake. Anyway, it ends up with Alec and the homie babe getting married, and the brother that's a drunkard gets his nerves back and operates on Alec's mother so she can see again, and then the drunken brother and old Marcia go for each other. It ends up with everybody at this long dinner table laughing their asses off because the Great Dane comes in with a bunch of puppies. Everybody thought it was a male, I suppose, or some goddamn thing. All I can say is, don't see it if you don't want to puke all over yourself. The part that got me was, there was a lady sitting next to me that cried all through the goddamn picture. The phonier it got, the more she cried. You'd have thought she did it because she was kind-hearted as hell. But I was sitting right next to her, and she wasn't. She had this little kid with her that was bored as hell and had to go to the bathroom, but she wouldn't take him. She kept telling him to sit still and behave himself. She was about as kind-hearted as a goddamn wolf. You take somebody that cries their goddamn eyes out over phony stuff in, in the movies, and nine times out of ten, they're mean bastards at heart. I'm not kidding. After the movie was over, I started walking down to the wicker bar, where I was supposed to meet old Carl Lucci, and while I walked, I sort of thought about war and all. Those war movies always do that to me. I don't think I could stand it if I had to go to war. I really couldn't. It wouldn't be too bad if they'd just take you out and shoot you or something, but you have to stay in the army so goddamn long. That's the whole trouble. My brother, D.B., was in the army for four goddamn years. He was in the war, too. He landed on D-Day and all, but I really think he hated the army worse than the war. I was practically a child at the time, but I remember when he used to come home on furlough and all. All he did was lie on his bed, practically. He hardly ever even came into the living room. Later, when he was overseas and he was in the war and all, he didn't get wounded or anything, and he didn't have to shoot anybody. All he had to do was drive some cowboy general around all day in a command car. He once told Allie and I that if he'd had to shoot somebody, he wouldn't have known which direction to shoot in. He said the army was practically as full of bastards as the Nazis were. I remember Allie once asked him, wasn't it sort of good that he was in the war because he was a writer and it gave him a lot to write about and all? He made Allie go get his baseball mitt, and then he asked him who was the best war poet, Rupert Brooke or Emily Dickinson. Allie said Emily Dickinson.
I don't know too much about it myself because I don't read much poetry, but I do know it'd drive me crazy if I had to be in the army and be with a bunch of guys like Ackley and Stradlater and old Maurice all the time, marching with them and all. I was in the Boy Scouts once, for about a week, and I couldn't even stand looking at the back of the guy's neck in front of me. They kept telling you to look at the back of the guy's neck in front of you. I swear if there's ever another war, they better just take me out and stick me in front of a firing squad. I wouldn't object. What gets me about D.B., though? He hated the war so much, and yet he got me to read this book, A Farewell to Arms, last summer. He said it was so terrific. That's what I can't understand. It had this guy in it named Lieutenant Henry that was supposed to be a nice guy and all. I don't see how D.B. could hate the army and war and all so much and still like a phony like that. I mean, for instance, I don't see how he could like a phony book like that and still like the one by Ring Lardner or the one that he's so crazy about, The Great Gatsby. D.B. got sore when I said that and said I was too young and all to appreciate it, but I don't think so. I told him I liked Ring Lardner and The Great Gatsby and all, and I did, too. I was crazy about The Great Gatsby. Old Gatsby, old sport, that killed me. Anyway, I'm sort of glad they've got the atomic bomb invented. If there's ever another war, I'm going to sit right the hell on top of it. I'll volunteer for it. I swear to God I will. End of chapter 18